Let's take the Word of God together again and go to Romans 16 this morning. Romans 16. Romans chapter number 16. In January of 2018, we began our series on the book of Romans. That was the very first message, was in January of 2018. We are at the last section of this epistle written by the Apostle Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As many letters are similar to this, this letter ends with a few different subjects. Uh, Paul, almost as a means of making sure everything has been included, that the Holy Spirit has guided him to write, gives us really three final subjects in this final passage. And we first of all see that Paul writes and deals with the subject of divisions. He does that in verses 17 through 20. In verses 21 through 24, we will call these Paul's final admonitions and conclusions. And then in verses 25 through 27, we will see Paul ascribes all glory to God alone. And let me add this, not to us. Paul ascribes all glory to God alone, not to us. That will be very important here in just a few moments. But you'll notice with me as Paul is bringing this letter to a conclusion, we understand that Paul has a few final things to say. Uh, there are times when a letter is written and the end of the letter is often time to give our final farewells. But sometimes as we get to the end of that letter, we begin to remember, oh yes, by the way, let me put you in remembrance of this. And many have said that this first section of these three subjects that I just went over, verses 17 through 20, are considered to be rather serious conclusions. Paul begins to deal with the importance of understanding doctrine and division. It's almost as if this is a little bit out of place. Now, we know the Word of God is not out of place, that God has put every word where he wanted it to be. So the, the, this, these warnings that Paul gives us, and that's really what verses 17 through 20 are, they are a serious warning about the danger of division and also false doctrine. Uh, Paul is concerned about stumbling blocks. Paul is concerned about traps and snares and things that might easily beset these believers here at Rome. Now, we know the church at Rome, as we've learned over the last year and a half or so, uh, this church was not perfect. Uh, it could not be said about the church at Rome that they had no issues or no problems. But Paul wanted them to know that everything that God had spoken to them about, he wanted to put them in remembrance of. Now, there is some similarity to what Paul writes in verses 17 through 20 to what we read about back in Romans 14 and 15. But Paul now specifically says, here's how I want you to deal with people who are creating stumbling blocks. People who are divisive. People who are false teachers giving bad doctrine. That's what Paul is referring to. So what I want to do is I want to zero in on verses 17 through 20 because it really is what sets off the end of this particular letter. Paul noticed in verse 17 
regarding those who cause division, as he, Paul admonishes the church to avoid them, here's what he says. He says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them. Now, this word mark is an interesting word, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But he says, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. He really gives a specific way of dealing with those who are causing division. He says, mark them. Mark is, is a word that uh, we need to understand it not only in the past tense, but also in the present tense. In other words, this is something that should always be done. The word mark is only found a few times in the entire New Testament, and Paul reserves it here and what it means to mark, it literally means to fix your eyes upon, direct your attention to it, and look out. Uh, beware of this. There was one commentator that put it this way. He said, to mark signifies to observe attentively and diligently as they do who are placed in a watchtower to observe the motions of their enemies. Much like a, a person who's been placed in the watchtower, look out for the enemy. That's what the word mark means. It doesn't mean put a, a literal mark on them or put a check mark on them. He says, keep your eye attentively fixed on them. Don't let them out of your sight. The purpose for why the brethren were to mark these people as described is mentioned next. It says, mark them which cause divisions. Now we see that these believers here at Rome... Uh, we've been taught throughout this letter that we are to turn away from those who are causing divisions and creating occasions of stumbling. Remember, we spent almost an entire month just talking about how the Jews and the Gentiles were not getting along in the church together and they were creating obstacles and stumbling blocks for one another. So this has been a very important theme that Paul's been talking about. But here's what he says about those who create divisions and offenses. It is contrary to the doctrine. Folks, real division in a church is caused by that which is contrary to the doctrine for which that church stands. In other words, division is not just a disagreement about what the building should look like. He's not talking about differences of opinion. We all have differences of opinion this morning. You and I can see a situation and we'll have a different opinion about how we view it. But he says, here's what you cannot tolerate. You cannot tolerate the division that is caused because they are contrary to the doctrine in which you stand. There are some things we just will not waver on. Paul is saying you cannot waver on your doctrine. You cannot waver on what we believe and what we stand on. And folks, that's where we are today by way of application as a church. There are things we can, we can move a little, but there are things we cannot waver on, and one of those is doctrine. We can, we can make changes and do different things along the way, but we cannot waver on our doctrine. We understand that divisions are caused by those who are acting contrary to the doctrine in which it has already been clearly stated and is stood upon. So anything contrary to God, anything contrary to his doctrine must be opposed and avoided. So there is a connection between division and doctrine. We will be divided if our doctrine is compromised. In the letter 2 John, if you want to turn there, verses 9 through 11, 
John in that of those three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Of course, 2nd John is 13 verses. It's a very short epistle. But you'll notice that he, speak, he speaks particularly here about abiding in the doctrine of Christ. And he says, if someone comes who doesn't share that doctrine, he says how you should deal with them. Verse number 9 of 2 John. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. That's how serious this is. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, now this will seem unkind, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaking of his evil deeds. Now this, this passage is loaded in and of itself. I mean, John gives warnings here. He says, listen, if you don't have the doctrine of Christ, which is the only doctrine, you don't have God. And he says that, that those that abide in the doctrine of Christ, they not only have the Son, but they have the Father. And he's so serious that he says, if someone to come into you and doesn't bring the same doctrine, don't receive them, and this is personal, into your house. He didn't just mean the church house. He meant your residence, where you reside. For he that biddeth him, or neither bid him God's be. In other words, don't give him blessings as he goes. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaking of his evil deeds. That's a serious matter. This doctrine of Christ, this doctrine that Paul has been writing about, he is linking together that godliness is linked with our correct doctrine. There will not be division if our doctrine is sound. And that is where Paul is lying the last parts of this letter. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, if you'd like to turn there, just a couple more passages of support before we get uh, even deeper into this. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. I want you to see uh, what he writes here. And again, this is Paul writing to Timothy as Timothy is going to be uh, becoming a pastor and taking over many of these churches and teaching and, and, and preaching. And he tells him in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Notice that supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Doctrine matters. So as Paul admonishes the church here in verse 17, whose responsibility is, is it to guard the purity of the church? Everyone who is a believer. Now God appoints someone to help guard the church as a pastor, as a shepherd, I am constantly looking out to be sure that the purity and the doctrine of this church remains sure. But you have a responsibility as individuals of this local body to be sure that there is no hint of false doctrine that is allowed to ever gain root into this group and this congregation of people. Because false doctrine is what causes division. Division 
is always caused by being contrary to what is true doctrine. So as we're all responsible for this, we have to be careful that it doesn't go unnoticed if false doctrine begins to enter in. We need to be on guard. That's what the word mark means. Be on guard. Look out for those who are creating division. Look out, to those, look out for those who are opposed to the doctrine in which we stand. Folks, we'll never know this for sure. And I'm not saying this in any sort of prideful way, but we will never know how many people have come into our congregation, have sat for a service or two, and have left because they refused to believe the doctrine in which we stand upon. Now, we, we take it personal. Sometimes we say, why did so-and-so come in the door and why did they leave as fast as they arrived? Why did so-and-so visit and we never saw them again? Sometimes it's because they don't stand on the same doctrine. Now you say, shouldn't they stay so they can hear the gospel? Yes, they should, but you can't force people to do that. But as a member of a local church, you should be fully in support of the doctrine in which your church stands upon. You, you should fully believe that what my church stands on in doctrine is what I, I, I am willing to stand there even if people oppose me. That's the idea Paul has here. Paul tells them, it's doctrine which ye have learned. And look what he says, avoid them. Avoid this false doctrine. Now, if we were to give a summary of just a few of the great truths of the doctrine that Paul has written to us about in the book of Romans, here's what they would be. We began a year and a half ago talking about that no flesh is justified by the law, but only by faith in Christ. We learned that righteousness is imputed by faith, not by works. These are great truths. We are to consider ourselves, or Paul uses the word reckon ourselves, to be dead to sin and alive to God in and through Christ. We learned that the only ground of our hope this morning is based upon the sovereign grace of a merciful God. That's our only hope. Salvation comes by faith through the preaching of the Word. In a day and age when churches are now doing away with preaching and turning it into a talk, the Bible doesn't say that faith comes through talking, through discussing, discussion. It comes through the preaching of the Word. Now, discussion has a place. Don't get me wrong. But if you take the preaching out of a church, that church is on its way to death. And it will die. I can assure you, it will die. We also learned about some practical things. We learned about charity. We learned about love. Was to be given to not just the Gentile, but to Jews and Gentiles alike, to all who are believers, weak and strong. And as we've been learning over the last few weeks, we are to pursue after things that make for peace, for unity, and edification. Paul says if you allow false doctrine to get in, it will disrupt these great truths. It will bring you to a place where if someone teaches contrary to these things, you are to avoid them. You are to shun them. You are to put them away. You say, this sounds harsh. That's how serious Paul was. Some have said it's all right to 
have a man who preaches a little bit of false doctrine to stand before the people and to preach. It's never okay. We've said that often, that if you're not in full agreement with what our church stands upon, then you will not be able to stand behind this pulpit and you will not be allowed to teach in any capacity. That's how important it is. This is things that are contrary. So Paul takes these admonitions and he gives them. And then notice what he says in verse 18. He talks about the characteristics or the reasons or the purpose of what these false teachers, what these people who are causing divisions are after. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. These false teachers who have always abounded in the church, all of these teachers who have been, Paul and John and Peter and James, all of those books, those letters mention this about the reality of these false teachers. False teachers, folks, in its purest form, are promoters of heresy. Heresy is divisive. You preach heresy, you will cause division. Paul is characterizing these individuals as not a desire to serve Christ. That's what he's saying. He said they don't desire to serve Christ. They desire to serve their own belly. They're in it for themselves. That's the only reason they do it. They are selfish in what they're aiming for. They are flattering, but at the heart of what they're doing, they are attempting to deceive you. And remember, deception, I don't have the patent on this, is that which is closest to the truth. Everybody in this room can recognize blatant error, but could you recognize subtle error? Could you notice the simplicity of a word, maybe a difference in the word of in and through or by or because? Sometimes just those little words that connect thoughts are actually what sets off what's really doctrine and what's false doctrine. So we have to be careful about these things. Paul says they do not have the glory of God. They do not have Jesus Christ or the good of his church on heart. They are sowing seeds of division. They are not sowing words that are edifying. They deceive, what does it say? The hearts of the simple. Folks, if I can just stop here for a moment and talk about this, this is why my desire is for us to be so grounded and so set and so secure that you cannot be tricked. That's why we make such a big deal around here about doctrine. That's why when you hear churches around us say, doctrine is just old stuff, Folks, it is that which makes a sound church is doctrine. Doctrine practically applied. If your doctrine cannot be applied, then it's not the doctrine of Christ. But it says their desire is to deceive the hearts of the simple. Can I tell you who are the people who are the easiest, easiest deceived? The people who don't know the word. It's hard to believe that people sit in churches for years and don't even know their Bible. They don't know the Word because they don't read the Word. They don't study the Word. Those are the people that get deceived. So Paul says, they're going to go after the simple and they're going to use good words and fair speeches. So we see how important this is. Paul is writing and telling us that when you hear these fair speeches that are causing division within the church, 
rebuke him and avoid him. Don't get near him. Sometimes I think we just are convinced, oh, that's just a harmless opinion. That's not a harmless opinion. If someone says, I I know you preach a lot about Christ. You stand on the word of God. You preach the gospel every single week. Don't you think you're overdoing it a little bit? That's a dangerous statement because you can never preach Christ too much. Now, Paul in verse number 19 gives him a little bit of a commendation. He says, for your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Paul commends them and he says, listen, your faith and your obedience, it's well known by other churches. And he says, I'm rejoicing this over this. Now, what's he rejoicing over? That they were just sound in doctrine? Well, partly, but he was also rejoicing that they were applying their doctrine practically. They were showing love. They were showing acts of kindness. They were promoting good things. But then he makes an interesting statement, but he says, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. This is a a peculiar statement he says here. In other words, he says, I want you, don't be simple-minded in doctrine, but do in fact be simple and naive in the ways of evil and deceit. In other words, you should not be known for your evil, your deception, your manipulation, or things that are unbecoming of a believer. You shouldn't even know they exist if you want to put it in its purest terms. You shouldn't be involved in the sins of the age. You shouldn't be acting as the unbeliever acts. Be naive to the things of the world. Don't be naive to the doctrine of Christ. Everybody getting that? Don't be naive to God, but it's okay to be naive to the things of the world. There's a movement that's happening, and some of us, this hits very personal, and belief has started that in order to recognize sin, you have to promote sin so that you can see it when it arrives. That is a lie. In other words, what they're saying is expose yourself to the sins of the age so that you can recognize it. That didn't come from the church, not solid Bible churches. We're never told in the word of God to engage yourself in sin so that you'll recognize it and know how to fight it. There are things that are the wickedness of the world you and I as believers should not even know about. You say, how can we not know about it? We're bombarded by it. Yes, we are. But how much of that bombardment is your own fault? How much of it is what you're exposing yourself to? Sometimes we act as if I can't help it. Many things we can't help. We're just choosing not to get rid of them. We're just choosing to still involve ourselves in them. And again, this is not a rant on what you should or should not do. That's between you and the Lord and your conscience. But understand something. Some of the bombardment that's happening in your life is created by your own choices. Mine included. Paul is just trying to explain to them there should be a difference. And the God of peace, look at this, verse 20, shall bruise Satan under your feet, surely. No, I just noticed this this morning. I just noticed this this morning. He says, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. I thought, well, that's astounding. I've read that verse a hundred times and I've just blown through it and I thought, yeah, God's going to put Satan under his feet. That's not what he says. He says, under your feet. Now, that doesn't mean the power is within. That doesn't mean you are self-sufficient and powerful. 
It, this isn't meaning you get up tomorrow morning, look yourself in the mirror and say, I am powerful and I can dictate and control my own life. No, he's got a point here. And here's the point. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Therein is the key. What Paul was saying here is he's telling them that no matter how much the church is going to be troubled, no matter how much division tries to enter in, no matter how many of the advocates and the opposers of the true doctrine of Christ try to come in, he tells them this, Satan is already a conquered enemy who's been given a little bit of a chain to work with, but one day... Ultimately, under the feet of God's people, Satan will ultimately be destroyed through the grace of God. Grace is not just what saves you. Grace is literally what keeps you. It is the only power we have. Were it not for the grace of God today, were it not for God's overruling power, we would never have any rest in this world. We would never have any peace in this world. But here is the grand good news today. God is still sovereign. God is still in control. And God is ruling and giving us peace, even in the midst of a wicked, vile world. That's why you can still sit down in your home or you can even sit down in this church and you can have the peace of God even though everything going on on the outside is vicious and vile and you could leave here hopeless or you could say, my faith and my hope is in Christ alone. And you leave and you say, I have peace in the midst of a wicked world. Paul reminds them that although these troubles are coming, don't ever forget the fact that the grace of God that saved you is the grace of God that's going to keep you. Satan will be defeated, ultimately. He's already been defeated at the cross, but his influence is still in the world. Verses 21 through 24, we're not going to spend a lot of time with these, but I do want you to see them. These are what I've just simply referred to as Paul's final admonitions and conclusions. You notice he mentions a familiar man by the name of Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Cortus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Remember I told you verses 17 through 20 seem to be out of place because if you remember our study of the last two weeks, Paul from verse 1 all the way through verse 16 has been saluting people. He's been commending. Remember, he was commending the women who helped with the gospel. He commended the men who were fellow laborers in the gospel. And then all of a sudden, verse 17, he says, Oh, by the way, I beseech you, mark them which cause divisions. And then verse 21, he goes right back to the commendations of the people. You see it? And that's what he's doing. He mentions Timotheus and he mentions these other individuals who were kinsmen. They were helpers. But then he mentions Tertius. And a lot of people, this kind of strikes them when they see it, who wrote this epistle. Somebody says, I thought Paul was the author of the book of Romans. He is. Tertius was his scribe. Tertius was the one that in many times wrote down what Paul spoke. You see, there are verses that remind us that sometimes Paul had a difficult time writing with his own hand. There are verses in Scripture and other letters where Paul, when he writes it himself, he uses that terminology. As a matter of fact, don't turn there, but Galatians 6.11, when Paul was bringing Galatians to an end, he says this, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. But Tertius, he says, Tertius wrote this epistle. 
He's the scribe. Paul's the one that gave the words to Tertius to write, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Paul himself, in order to authenticate his epistles, to declare that they were indeed written by him, he would himself say, with mine own hand. 1 Corinthians 16, 21, he says a similar thing. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. 2 Thessalonians 3, 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. I just point that out to us because I think it's important for us to see that Paul is saluting all that are in the Lord. He mentions Gaius, mine host. Many people believe that Gaius was the man hosting Paul when he was writing this letter. That Gaius had spent time being a, a host for him. And then he mentions a man by the name of Erastus, who is the chamberlain of the city. Uh, that many, many people believe that he was a treasurer of some sort. He was a public official. But what Paul says, again, as he ends this section, every section, Paul typically ends with this phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's a repeated statement. Paul said it in verse 20. He says it here again in verse 24. Folks, let me tell you this morning, there is a constant supply of God's grace. It is communicated to us in every way, in every manner, and it's daily. I'm so glad the grace of God was not a one and done. I'm glad that grace didn't just save me. It is my only hope. Paul continually through this letter remind, reminded the Romans about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we needed his grace to redeem us. We need his grace every single moment to even keep believing. I want you to consider that for a moment. You think you keep believing, but it is his grace that keeps you in belief. Now again, that's a, that is a portion of, it can be false doctrine right there. There are people that will say this, yes, grace saved me, but I'm making a choice to say, say it. No, God's grace is what keeps you believing. God's grace by the Holy Spirit is what keeps reminding you that Jesus Christ is truth. It's not an intellectual ascent that gets you into heaven. It is not your intelligence. We need His grace every moment to believe. You need His grace every moment to stand in this world, you stand by God's grace, not by your own strength. You need God's grace to simply live. You need God's grace to actually love the way the Bible says to love. Husbands that are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, they love their wives by the grace of God. That's how important this is. You need God's grace to persevere. And folks, take this as serious as I'm standing here. You need God's grace to die. The only way you're walking to the valley of the shadow of death is through the grace of God, because any other way, it's a fearful thing. To die without Christ is the most horrific of thoughts. To die without His grace, to face death without His grace, is a horrific thought. So you need him to save you, to live, but you also need his grace to die. This leads Paul, who understood when, remember Paul prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be removed? 
And God told him, my grace is sufficient. The grace that God was telling Paul about was not just the grace that saved him. It was the grace that did all these things for him. When Paul was martyred for his belief and his faith in Christ, it was God's grace that carried him over the threshold into the presence of his Savior. Paul concludes this letter by ascribing all glory to God alone, and as I mentioned to you, not to us. In a day and age which man seeks his own glory, seeks his own applause, seeks his own influence, seeks that which makes him better, Paul says, verse 25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. Paul says, all that we are, all that we have, the stability of who you are, what you are in Christ, is because of his power. It is God alone who all the glory and praise and, yes, even applause is due. He mentions my gospel. Again, people who simple-minded say, Paul's taking glory for himself. He calls it my gospel. Paul, he says one thing. Now to him, gives all the power and glory by my gospel. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul was so convinced that the gospel and the doctrine that he knew could be trusted, it could be believed, it could be proclaimed. He believed it so much he died for it. Folks, when you're saved... All of us can say, it is my gospel. Not because I secured it, not because I earned it, but because by the grace of God, he shed his light abroad in my heart. He brought me to belief. He brought me the gift of faith. He brought me the gift of repentance. And that leads us to humbly say, to God alone be the glory. Not to me. We are to seek zero glory. Yet, if we're not careful, we begin to say what we can do. If anybody could have boasted about what he did, it would have been Paul. Here's what I would tell you. Unless you can exceed what Paul did, you really have no grounds to boast about anything. And the way I see it, and don't take this the wrong way, none of us are going to exceed what Paul did. So again, even if you could exceed it, you still don't boast. Even Paul himself said, I'm not going to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my only boast. That's my only thing. That's giving God all the glory. And by the way, giving God all the glory isn't just saying it as a Christian catchphrase. Just by saying glory to God, all glory be to God, doesn't mean that that's what you actually really believe. Plenty of people have said glory be to God while saying, boy, look how good I did Look at the response I've gotten out of people. Man, I must really be something. No. All glory is to God. We look to Him. We depend upon Him. He is our preservation. He is what not only preserves us, but He is what's going to preserve His church. Folks, if we stand on what's right, and we stand on what's true, which is the gospel, a hundred years from now, if the Lord has not returned the second time, 
Our prayer ought to be that there will be a group of believers standing in this exact same spot, standing for the exact same truth, preaching and declaring the same thing we're declaring today. You and I won't know if they exist. hundred years from now, we won't know if there's a group of people still standing on the doctrine in which we're standing. But Paul wrote this years and years ago, and yet he's saying this is still true today. This is where you should stand. Notice he says about this gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. What does Paul mean? The gospel is a, it is a mystery. Can I tell you this this morning? The gospel is not understood by the power of the human mind. The human mind will never grasp what the gospel actually is. As a matter of fact, to the human mind, the gospel sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like something that just cannot be. But yet, to those who are saved, those who are in Christ, God has revealed to us very carefully and clearly what faith is. You, you explain to the human mind how the gospel was formed from eternity. Explain that to someone, that the gospel existed before man ever existed. Explain to the human mind how something that man would desperately need was not even revealed to them by themselves, but only by God. It is indeed a mystery. But Paul does say this about that mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. But look what he says in verse 26, but now is made manifest. Now, he says, it has been revealed. This divine mind of God, which has been revealed by the apostles and by the prophets, by the preaching of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel is not a suggestion of God, it's a command of God. When we gather as a church, I don't go over a list of suggested topics and say, okay, God, let me choose which one. You just suggest them all. The gospel's a command. When you say to a group of people, and maybe they're unbelievers, and you say, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not given an invitation, you are preaching a command. People say, I've always thought the gospel was just an invitation to let people kind of roll it around in their mind and decide, do I want to do this or not? No, it's a command. Because what the Bible says, those who are Christ, they will respond to that, they will repent, and they will come unto Him, and they will not be cast out. You are commanding them that's the faith in which we stand. Paul says it was a mystery, but now it's made manifest. What had been made manifest since before time began? Christ, by the time Paul writes these words, Christ had already come. He had already lived a sinless, perfect, obedient life for those years. And he, he, he walked with the apostles and the disciples. And at the appointed hour, Jesus Christ delivered himself up unto the wicked, vile authorities to be hung on an old, rugged Roman cross. And there he shed his blood. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he died upon that cross. They took his body off of that cross. They put him in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, just as he promised, just as the prophets had said, he burst forth from that grave. He was seen by witnesses. And then, just as they said, he ascended back up to the right hand of the Father where he remains to this very hour. 
It's been revealed now. He says, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Here, this gospel formed before eternity had been prophesied about throughout the Old Testament is now by the command of God been made known to all nations. We think about this today and we think about being made known to all nations. Imagine if we simply, our little corner of the world, we simply made it our desire to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ right where we are. And every single church who stands on sound doctrine did the same. Paul, as he concludes this letter, he says in verse 27, to God, and I circled this word, only wise. Be glory through Jesus Christ for how long? Forever. To God only wise. This is profound, very simple, but only God alone possesses true wisdom. We know in 1 Corinthians 1, God declares the wisdom of men as foolishness. He says man's wisdom is foolish. My wisdom is the wisdom which saves. So what do we owe to God as we bring this letter to a close? What do we owe to God? At the very basic level, we owe him complete reverence. Total reverence. Reverence that you have saved or you are wasting on a person or a thing or an activity should cease. Reverence should be on God alone. You say, I don't reverence anything but God. I doubt that's true for any of us. We all reverence things. Sometimes we reverence things more than we should, although they're wonderful gifts. Reverence is to God alone. We also owe him humble submission. There's a movement today that has misunderstood the throne of grace and has simply said, God told me to come boldly before the throne of grace. It doesn't mean to come boldly in arrogance. To come boldly doesn't mean you're coming as if you have a right to it. It's coming in humility saying, I don't deserve this, but Lord, you've commanded me to come and here I am. I'm only there because of what Christ has done. I'm only there because you have given me the gift of faith. How do we give God the glory? Here's the key. Be glory through, remember I told you that's a, that's a catch word, through Jesus Christ. That means anything that does not speak of Christ is not to God's glory. There's a lot of people running around today to saying God be the glory, but mention the name of Christ and they will run. There is no glory apart from Christ. It's an amazing thing. You'd, I never would have thought I've seen it happen, but I've seen it happen a few times where people get offended in a church by the name of Christ being mentioned too many times. If Christ offends you, if Christ offends you, I seriously doubt you're in Christ. That doesn't mean you should run and never come back. But Christ is not offensive to you. Christ should not be something that says, I'm ashamed of him. I'm offended by him. No, 
I'm offended because I am so unworthy to measure up to what he's done for me. That's real humility. False humility doesn't give God the glory. Please remember that. It's easy to be falsely humble. Where does that happen? In situations like this. We demonstrate humility because other people are watching, but are you humble by yourself? Are you humble? Are you giving God all the glory when you're sitting by yourself in those times and hours? And sometimes, some of you, you may spend a lot of time by yourself. Are you giving God the glory through Jesus Christ in those times? Not just when you're holding a hymn book or reading your Bible in our church. I'm talking about real humility when it's just you and the Lord. Do you read his word with reverence? Do you read his word with humility? Do you give it the possibility that he may be speaking directly to you about this? Not about the relative who needs to hear it. You see, when we give God the glory, what we are doing is we are reverencing and we are in humble submission to him. We fail to give God glory when we call into question what he has revealed or consider ourselves competent to sit in judgment on the truths of which he's declared. That's a deadly one right there. We think we're competent to judge for God. The most popular statement is in Christianity today about judging, only God can judge me. That ought to scare you to death. We act like that's, that's a step down. That's actually the most frightening thing I could give you today is knowing, yes, at the end of the day, the only judgment that's going to matter is what God says about you. Not what anybody in this world says about you today ultimately is not going to matter for eternity. And people will say wrong things about you. Mark it down, I guarantee it. And some things they'll judge rightly. They'll call you in sin and you are in sin. You know you're in sin and you say, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. You better be in Christ. Because there's a judgment day coming. There's a day coming when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he is the only one who can, has the wisdom to know that which is correct, that which is right. We should ascribe to God, not to ourselves, all glory and thanksgiving. All that we are, all that we have, to bear thanks to God. All glory is deserved by God. From the salvation of sinners, all of it comes through God, through His Son. I will never cease to make much about Christ. If a preacher's ever asked to cease from preaching Christ, even in a church, he should leave it. Hey, you can't preach Christ anymore. You can't, I can't be here. Because everything is through Jesus Christ. Genesis to Revelation is through Jesus Christ. Not just a book of Romans. This is a beautiful letter. Convicting, challenging, edifying, humbling. But it's all those things because it's through Christ. 
In Christ, all things exist. All things are united in him, not just here on earth, but everything is in and through him. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus Christ is God. A church that says Jesus Christ is not God is not a church. You say that's just one doctrine, preacher. That changes everything. And it would scare you. It would scare you. How many churches near you do not really believe Jesus Christ is God, although it says church on the, on the sign? Just saying the name of Jesus doesn't mean you're a believer. Just speaking to say, I believe in Jesus doesn't mean you're a believer. It is what think ye of Christ. That's true doctrine. That will dictate what you really believe. Someone meets with me and says, I want to know what your church believes. My first question is going to be to them, what do you think of Christ? And in that answer, I will hear everything I need to hear. You say, don't you want to hear my opinion about church structure and how congregation? Uh Uh-uh. I want to hear what think ye of Christ. Is that really that important? Yes. It's the only thing that's going to matter. Because that's going to tell me what you believe about every word from Genesis to Revelation. That one answer. The work of Christ is the glory of the Father. When God the Father said, I will glorify myself through the Son, he was saying, I will glorify myself through the work of Christ. Why? Because the Father is one with the Son. What the Son declares is the Father's will. What the Father declares is the Son's will. Our letter comes to a conclusion the same way that Jude, we haven't preached through that little book yet, concludes his epistle to the only wise God, our Savior. Here's how Jude ends his letter. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Paul says, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And with that, we conclude the book of Romans. Let's stand together if you would. And I do, I know we're a little bit over this morning, but I want to sing this hymn to bring this time to a close. 186, 186, a debtor to mercy.